It is good to be with you this morning. It feels like a little bit more like home to my wife and I, although I uh, live in Virginia Beach. Most of our adult life was spent in upstate New York. The only thing missing on the temperatures this morning was two feet of snow. I still walk outside after five years in Virginia this time of year. If it's gray, I think, oh, it's going to be about 17 degrees when I walk outside, and I'm often just still like in shock when I step out and it's 65 in January or something. So, you know, it's God's gift to my family. We groan over cold weather, uh, the longing for it, missing the snow, which might simply indicate my long-term need for treatment to some of you. Um, (laughs) If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll be reading out of the New Inspired Version, the NIV. I realize many here use the Extra Special Version, or the ESV. Uh, Both are driven out of the same text, and hear the word of the Lord. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 to 5. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them, because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in every envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, for it is yours indeed. You have inspired its writing. You have superintended it through the centuries, yea, even the millennia. And you grant it to us as a gift that we may understand you more and more, understand the call of how we are to live, understand our own hearts, and be pointed back afresh to the one for whom and by whom we are made, you, Lord Jesus. This morning, Father, we pray that you will instruct us by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts, that we may behold the glory of Jesus and his beauty more fully. At the same time, we pray that you might show us deeply our great need for him, that we might ever and always be turning back to him, the source of life for us. Spirit of God, let not my own weaknesses, my own sin, get in the way of what you would teach, for we acknowledge that this is your word. Write it upon us, that Christ may be seen and known. Amen. Well, it's a strange passage. Here I am, a guest preacher to you, and I want to talk to you about slavery, you might think. Why on earth would somebody pick this passage? That's right up there with like Leviticus 17. Let's talk about leprosy this morning. That's really relevant to me. Well, what I want you to get out of this passage is uh, the connection to how we live today. In the ancient world, whether we're going to talk about uh, Roman culture or Greek culture, slavery was everywhere. In fact, slaves were the labor pool. So most of us sitting here would own a slave or be a slave at a worship service in the ancient world. Master and slave would often sit side by side. It is estimated that in the first century before Christ, in the, what we refer to as Italy today, 
the heart of the Roman Empire, that in that little nation alone, there were two to three million slaves present, just to give you a reference point. And so when Paul writes this, he's in no way advocating for slavery. He's writing into a circumstance or a situation that simply is there. It exists. But as he teaches, as the Spirit of God calls his people, the principles of the gospel in view, the honor of Christ and the teaching of Christ, undermined the very fabric of slavery in its day, as the beauty of Christ was proclaimed through those who had no station in life to speak of. The crossover for you and me in this passage is this. I don't think any of you, as I look out there, are necessarily slaves. Anyone today? No? Uh, do any of you ever feel like it with a tyrannical boss or a difficult uh, family situation? Or some of you are college students, and I'm sure you're absolutely convinced that you have a professor who is out simply to kill and destroy you with his workloads. Perhaps he sits in this room with you even now. I don't know. Um, but the crossover of this text is into the work world. We're going to talk about two things this morning. First, we're going to talk about God's honor and difficult relationships. For all of us live under authority, and all of us exercise authority in life. I'll unpack that for you in a minute. And then secondly, I want to identify how false teaching dishonors God and actually destroys our relationships and what God has intended for his people. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. We'll start in verse 1, God's honor and difficult relationships. He starts with all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect. Now, first, what is a yoke? If you can picture uh, an Old West farming community, you can see two oxen with the crossbars over their shoulder dragging the plow through the field. That's a yoke. If, you can, if you've ever seen pictures of uh, rural areas, tribal areas, even in India today, or in places in Africa, you'll see a bar across a person's shoulder hanging with water or fruit or food from it as they go to market and they come home. It's a yoke. So what Paul writes here is this, all who are under a yoke of slavery. So that's our picture, all who are under a burden. In Pauline language often, he will use the law and, and yoke together. All who are trapped under a burden that crushes them, that they think they have to manage to be okay. They feel enslaved to it. And so in this text, we look and we identify it this way. I want to invite you to wrestle with the text under this lens. All you who live under the yoke of slavery, that is all who live in a world in which they have to work hard to make it, all who have people over them who have authority or power over them, who work to honor them, I think that's most of us, and we will identify in parallel texts where Paul talks about the other side, not the slave, but the master. And these ideas go together in Pauline thought. That is, as a master, you and I, if you have employees, are just as responsible for how we live as those who are under us. There is no favoritism between the two. And we've all had the unjust boss. I remember when I was... Um, in my early 20s, just out of college, my first uh, place of employment after college, I worked in Columbus, Ohio for a, a small technology company called Digital and Analog Design, or DAD for short. Um, and I, as I worked for DAD, and that's kind of a good crossover for me, difficult relationships when I was growing up, um, we sold and worked for commission. When I first started there, I had a wonderful boss. His name was John. 
John loved the Lord. John saw his purpose or his, uh, his philosophy of management, if you will, was to look at me and the other sales reps and say, how do I help you flourish? How do I serve you? And that was his picture. And he was content with the fact that I was a 24-year-old guy who wanted to make just enough commission to play golf because I only needed to support me. So if I made two sales in the first week, I had a light month. But I digress. That's probably about my work ethic when I was 20. Then I got a new boss because uh, we were bought out by another firm. And my new boss, I remember vividly our first sales meeting. We walked into the conference room in our offices, and he was playing some loud piece of music, and he was literally running around the office shouting, pump it up, we all want to make money. And so the, uh, the God of the office changed radically on that new day of employment, as did the motivation of most of us who worked there. Because most of us identified that that was an unsatisfying way to consider our work. Not because everyone in the office would profess to know Christ, but we all were aware to some extent of limits as we went along. Do I think earning a healthy income is bad? No. I live in the north end of Virginia Beach. I need a healthy income just to pay the bills. But what we serve is the key principle in view. Look at the text again for a moment. All who are under a yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect. Now, there's not a period there, so this is the goal. If you're trapped in slavery, honor your master, have a good day, see you later. No, where Paul goes here is, is, is pointed and purposeful. Listen to his next line, so that what may happen? So that you may be treated well? No. So that you can have everything you need? No. Rather, so that God's name, the name of the Lord Jesus and all that is taught, he taught us and we teach regarding him may not be slandered. You see, the key thing in view is this. I am going to be under authority. I own a nonprofit at this point in my life, insofar as one can own a nonprofit, and I am accountable. I have a board that I report to. They oversee my financials. I talk with them about employment, employee problems when we have them develop models of where we're going, et cetera, et cetera, and they provide an accountability for me. Um, and some of them, I have one, his name is Randy, I won't tell you his last name, he's senior vice president, works for Optima Health, and I tease Randy that I'm going to get a new business card made for him that says, annoying board member, or Randy Ricker, ABM, because every time I'm with him, he sticks his finger in there and pokes and presses on me, how are you doing and where are you going, and I need that. I have chosen to be under his authority, if you will. I have people who work for me. How I live impacts them. So I am under and I am over. Many of you look like parents. You have authority, or at least we believe we do, over our children. I liked that period when my kids were really little. I felt like I was really you know, the sovereign of the home. You know that brief period when you can pick them up and put them in the pack and play or the crib and go, ah, that felt really good. And you can walk out. Now I have two teenagers. My, uh, my baby will be 15 this month and has a size 14 shoe. I can't pick him up and put him anywhere. However, I can love him well. You see, I can feel trapped as a parent with kids. Again, I want you to understand principle. We live often identifying yokes that we live under. We look at them as burdens that we have to control or manage. And we carry within that 
the attitude of slavery. Uh, here Paul again in Colossians 3.22 and th through 5, he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Do you hear that again? It's not about the one you serve, meaning the human, the boss, the teacher, the coach. It is about an identity change for you. If you know Jesus, your identity change has changed everything. The ancient Greek or the ancient Roman wasn't primarily to identify themselves as a slave of their master, but rather as one called who serves the king of heaven. And it was in that framework that slavery was undone. For my outward role could be the slave. My outward role in this sanctuary could be the college student, the husband, the wife, the employee, or the employer. But if you profess to know Jesus, then there's something far more fundamental to your identity. You are His, and His nearness is now your good. What or whom we serve defines our lives and how we understand ourselves Paul identifies at the end of that same passage in, Col in um, Colossians, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. There's no favoritism, no exceptions. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of whom one day we will all give account. He knows it. Another parallel passage from Paul is Ephesians 6, 9, and this is pointed more at us if we're the boss, the employer, the slave master. Masters, treat your slaves, e.g. your employees, in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. No favoritism with him. What's he driving at again? Whatever position you are in life is not the key question. The key question is, do you know Jesus? And then secondly, if you do know Christ, do you live as one called to serve? For even Jesus came and he said, I came not to be served, but to serve, to give my life a ransom for many. Position was irrelevant. Calling is everything. The honor of God and the glory of God is at the heart of our teaching. In 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul wrote this in this little letter commenting on the teaching of the letter. Our command, the goal of the command of all the teaching is love. You see, when I remember that my calling is to love as an overflow of the one who has loved me, it doesn't matter if I work for Camper and he's a nasty, evil boss, which Kathy Buell tells me all the time, but that's the subject out of the sidebar, sorry. Did I say that out loud? I'm, I'm sorry. It doesn't matter how he treats me, because my call is not to fix him. My call is to invite the Spirit of God and the power of the gospel to address me. It's not an argument that if you're a slave, if you're not doing well in your company or your position, that you have to sit there and, dear Lord, thank you, may I have another. That's not what he's talking about either. The address is to your heart. The address of the passage was to the heart of the slave. Imagine the complexity of that. In the ancient Near East, in the, in the early church, slave and master would sit together at church. The ground was understood as completely level at the foot of the cross. 
So if I have household slaves, I might sit in the front row with them. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And then I go home, and they are my property, legally speaking. Confusion, how does that work? And so Paul takes the second piece in this passage, and he says, listen, those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. You see, often in, when we work for Christians or in the Christian community or in the church, we get fuzzy about boundaries. We're all the same. You're no better than me. You have no right to tell me that. Attitudes abound out of our heart. And that's true and false is the problem. You see, if you work for me, I'm your boss, I have a right to direct you. You're my employee. However, I don't have a right to be unkind and to mistreat you, for there's no favoritism. Similarly, if you work for me and you are my employee, even if I'm having a difficult period in life and I'm difficult to live with in the office, you're not freed from the teaching of Christ and his sweet aroma is to come from you. You see, the gospel addresses our hearts. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you a little bit differently. We can think of it this way. The way of the enslaved heart might look something like this. Perhaps we can hear the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 as he talks about the log and the speck. He says that, you know, deal with the log in your own eye before you go after the speck in the other one's eye. In other words, if your strategy is the enslaved one, why do you keep doing this to me? I'm going to get you to see it. Just kind of reach out and kind of try to grab that speck and yank for all you're worth. You're living the enslaved life. For you have given the other person a power over you that belongs to Jesus to define your well-being. Maybe some of us take a little different approach. Life is going hard, and so we want to curl up into the ball, and woe is me, I'm going to die. Well, you have just rejected the notion that God is good and that he is sovereign and his will is kindly intended toward you and he's at work continuing to work out your redemption. A slave's an enslaved heart. You know, more commonly, simpler common tasks, James says the tongue is a fire. Perhaps you're one who practices the idea of gossip, but not as Christians in a church. What we do is let's pray together and then we pray for somebody else out loud. That's the spiritual version of gossip at times, right? But we gossip as a way to elevate ourselves. We gossip to complain against those in authority over us, always in a move to say, I'm better off, and we feel better, a way to break our own bondage, not realizing what we're doing is, in fact, pressing ourselves more deeply into it. I tend a little bit more on the passive, passive side in my life, so my, more, my preferred strategy, perhaps, is I'll just ignore you and create a great relational distance, and then when you've gone far enough, you've fallen off the edge of the planet, and all is good again. Um, you might know that as denial in your life. You see, all these options violate the sound teaching, the command to love. And actually, they look like they're going to protect me, but they only leave me more and more enslaved under the yoke that sits on me. Does that make sense to you? You see? So what Paul is saying here is, look, you're looking at your circumstance. Look at your God. Jesus left the right hand of the Father and laid his life down. And then he invites you and me into that same life. Jesus says, apart from the Father, I can do nothing. And then in John 15, he instructs the disciples, 
apart from me, you can do nothing. See, the invitation is always the call of the gospel, always into a dependent life. The way of freedom might look more like this. I need to confess that I'm frustrated or hurt or I simply don't want to love or honor another person. I need to invite the Spirit of God to deal with me. Perhaps it's more you need to confess, acknowledge, own that you can't make the outward situation better and that it makes you angry that you're not God. Maybe you need to confess your desire for the other person to change instead of asking God to deal with you. And pray, ask God to change your heart. And you can, we can pray, we can cry out to the Father asking Him to remind us that He is both sovereign and good and not unaware. There's a passage I memorized years ago in Isaiah 40. It goes, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, that your way is hidden from your God and that the justice due your cause escapes His notice? Anybody ever prayed that attitude? Because I'm selfish, Father, and I practice my unbelief, and I walk away from the good hope you've given me. That's the best answer I've got. You see, we all live under a yoke. The question that we need to wrestle with that I believe the Scriptures are pointing to here is not the nature of the yoke, how long or how heavy or how weighted is your burden, The key question is the sound teaching of Christ and his glory. Do I practice my unbelief or persistently am I turning saying, oh Lord, you are mighty and you are good. So great is your love that even in the extent of my difficult places and circumstances, you will not leave me. My father-in-law, he's with the Lord now. My son is named after him, Sam. Sam died 16, 18 months after I was married. He had severe diabetes. He walked my, da- my, wa- my daughter, who I then married. That's a mess right in there somewhere. Um, he walked my wife down the aisle on two prostheses. He'd lost both legs below the knee to the disease. You would have thought if you met him, he had a back problem. He met the Lord after he lost his first leg. As he walked down that aisle, the aisle, big grin on his face. It was delightful to be there with him. My, my wife is daddy's girl. Six weeks after our wedding, Sam drove himself to the hospital for quadruple bypass, had a stroke in ICU, and spent 14 months dying. Amputated his right hand, gangrene, heart failures, renal failures. It was an awful 14, 15 months watching it happen. The doctors would come and say, when your heart stops again, what do you want us to do? Not yet, but when. And I remember these moments vividly as Sam was basically, he drove himself to the hospital and then was unable to care for himself in any meaningful way ever again. But he would say, that's not mine to choose. You do your part and let's let God do his part. He didn't see himself as a victim of a body dying. He saw himself as a son who was yet working out his faith and hope of the goodness of his father. You see, we all carry yokes. It doesn't really matter what kind. The key issue is who holds that yoke? Sam understood the yoke holder as the Lord Jesus. Paul is instructing the slave here, your yoke is really Jesus, and his burden is actually pretty easy and light if you turn to him. Who owns your yoke, men and women? You see, Paul then transitions Go with me back into your text, and the false teaching shows up, and the false teachings that destroy relationships. If anyone teaches 
false doctrines and does not agree to the what again? The sound instruction or healthy instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching. He's conceited and understands nothing. You see, as, as we understand Christ, as we are brought to faith, is that transaction takes place in us where we look at him and say, Lord Jesus, take my life, forgive my sin, make me the man or the woman you want me to be. I yield here, Lord, as faith is birthed in us. It's not just a transaction for eternity. It's a present hope now. As Jesus comes upon us and our lives are to declare the king of heaven, the maker of heaven and earth knows my name and loves me. False teaching comes along and undoes that. The gospel on the one hand is to transform us from the inside out. False teaching undermines that on a regular basis. Now in the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, which is what this is a congregation of, you know, we value highly that our teachers are well-trained, well-equipped in the scriptures. Um, you know, I sit with Camper or Ben, they can tell you about their stories of ordination. It's kind of the hazing project of our denomination. Many of us, on, as we go through it, would think, as we are thoroughly examined about life, about our beliefs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and it's an hours and hours and hours journey because if I'm going to teach the word, I'm going to be a doctor of the soul, essentially, I better know what I'm doing lest you come in for surgery and you need an appendix, an appendectomy, and we cut your leg off. Instead, I need to know spiritually not to cut legs off, but to treat appendicitis. That's great and that's valuable. However, for many of us anyway, I'll speak for myself, for me, often I teach falsely anyway. Oh, I'm not saying as I'm standing here with you, I'm lying to you, put your pen down. I am telling you that my life is not in tune often with what his word tells me uh, is yours. If the great command here, Paul says our command is to evidence itself in love, yet I can be a parent of teenagers and, okay, Cron, what is the command? Well, certainly a lot of times my teenagers would tell you my dad's a good dad, he loves me, and then other times there would be they know the implicit family command is dad is irritated, stop it, whatever that is. Do any other parents have that command in your home? Your goal as my child is to not irritate me, right? When I say, please pick up your room, I want the supernatural to occur. <laughs> it's cleaned, right? You see where I'm going there. And then I get irritated and angry because I don't necessarily experience my kid is honoring me. You with me? Any parents tracking with me on this at all? Just bear with me on this. I'm going to talk to myself. No, but... <laughs> And see, then now what do I do? Now I'm irritated. Uh-oh. What do I believe is actually true? Ah, oh, now there's a problem. You see, I can profess all day long what I believe. I graduated from Reformed Theological Seminary, and at the time, one of our gauntlets towards graduation, are many of you familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? We had to take a written on it when I was graduating, and we were allowed three errors on the entire thing, an error being a instead of the, right? And it's a little bit lengthy. So we actually, ha we had to know that thing. It's kind of like algebra though. Am I really going to use that on an everyday basis? I'm not so sure. Very valuable to define my faith. But I look at how my, what my life often displays that I believe. Look here at these words that Paul 
uses with us. Envy, piece of false teaching, it's what it stirs up. Resentments or jealousy over the gifts or successes of another. Let's pretend, men and women, we're at a 12-step meeting. Hello, my name is Kron, and I'm an envyaholic. Do I have any friends? We could go to the next one. Era, strife, competition, contention. Anybody have any conflict trying to get your kids out the door this morning for church? That's the Baptist church down the street, surely not at a Presbyterian church. Or we could look at the next one, blasphemia, from which we get blasphemy, but it's really harmful, abusive speech, malicious talk against someone else's reputation. You ever get mad, anybody, and say critical things of another? Maybe kids of your parents or students of professors? Spouses of, of sp husbands of wives, wives of husbands? Let me go to the next one. Evil or suspicious, secret opinions. They're not really weighted to anything. We just feel this way. So we kind of create conjectures negatively about the folks around us. You know, preemptively reject them lest they should hurt us, perhaps. And he talks about this next one, you know, this kind of constant friction that it, that it produces. It's a great word. This word translated constant friction is the same word used for, the, for moths gnawing on fabric or rust eating iron. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never put my ear like on a train track and listened for that, but I'm thinking I'm not going to hear the rust eat the iron. I've certainly pulled sweaters out of the closet, you know, when I'm getting them out and had a hole in them because a moth is eating them, but, but I've never really heard them. Has anybody heard a moth eating? It doesn't sound like it's probably a very loud thing, but it's destroying something subterranean. It attacks us at the same place where the gospel, where the sound teaching of the gospel of Jesus is to renew us in our hearts, producing a transformed life externally. So what did I just say to you? Well, we all exercise authority in our lives. If you're a parent, you have kids under you, they wear your yoke. If you've had a job, you wear a yoke. If you're a doesn't matter where we are, authority happens. And it is in the rub of these places that we identify what we really believe. You see, I can spit right answers out at you because I'm supposed to. I'm a teaching elder. I have two master's degrees. I'm the guy with the right answers. I'm a pastor and a counselor. But often my life follows the don't irritate me command. Not the certainty that I am loved. Let me pour my life out for you. And so I just reflect to you, as you sit here today, what do you believe? Do you believe the Lord Jesus came for you, knows your name, died and rose again? What does that look like as you live out your life? Does it look like this, or the life of love, driven by risk? A risk that says, I will hope in you, in the certainty of your kindness, my gracious God. It's a wonderful old story. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's called Babette's Feast. It was written by um, Isaac Dennison, and it was set in a strict and dour fundamentalist community in Denmark, now, which means it was probably reformed. If you're not familiar with the language, that means us. Um, it was Dutch reformed, so there, if you've never been around them, they can be a fairly staid bunch of folks. 
Babette worked as a cook for two elderly sisters who had no idea that once upon a time she was a, a chef serving nobility in Paris where she grew up. Um, her dream was to be able to return home to that city. So every year Babette would stop and buy a lottery ticket hoping from outside intervention to free her from this yoke of serving these people who every night asked the fine French chef to make the same dinner yet again of boiled fish and potatoes because, they say, Jesus commands us to take no thought of food or drink. One day, the unbelievable happened, and Babette won the lottery. 10,000 francs, which in the day would be an enormous sum of money. Desiring to give of herself, she asked the townsfolk if she may prepare them a feast. First they argued with her, and they finally gave in, saying to each other, it would be sin to indulge in such rich food, but Babette begged them, and so they relented. As a favor to you, they said to her, we will allow you to serve us this French dinner, but secretly they vowed not to enjoy the feast in the least, for that would clearly have been sin. And so instead, they promised to occupy their minds with spiritual things, believing God would not blame them for eating this sinful meal as long as they did not actually enjoy the food. Well, she begins her preparations, and caravans of exotic food begin to arrive at the village, cages of quail, barrels of the finest of wines. And as the meal um, begins to unfold, she starts it with a delightful, exquisite turtle soup. And the diners, well, they just kind of forced it down, continuing to have no enjoyment of the food put before them. And though they usually ate in silence because they're not supposed to have delight anywhere, because after all, the call of our God is to be straight-laced, sober, and sad, um, slowly the atmosphere changed and someone actually smiled, and then the wine was served, a fine year of the wine. And then there was a giggle, and somebody put an arm around somebody else, and, and before you know it, someone says actually out loud, after all, did not the Lord Jesus say love one another? And then the main entree of quail arrives, and the, these pleasure-fearing people are suddenly giggling and laughing, slurping, guffawing, and praising God for the years they had had together. This pack of Pharisees was transformed into a loving community through the gift of a meal. Then one of these two sisters goes to find Babette in the kitchen to thank her and asks, Oh, how we will miss you when you return to Paris. And Babette replied, I will not be returning to Paris. I have no money. I spent it all on this feast. I think you get the principle, right? If you read the Gospels, you will hear and see the sound teaching of the Savior modeled, for they tell us about Jesus primarily. You can watch how Jesus loves. If you mark the word, and he saw and he looked, things, words that have to do with vision in general, you will see him in the language of the text, he saw a man born blind, and it's clear that he really looks at the person, because then the disciples will ask him about the person. So Jesus actually stops and takes the time, the king of heaven, to see a person, to engage them. And invariably, what you see attached in the words or the actions is he feels compassion for them. And then he steps in and he helps. 
So he heals the blind man. He restores the leopard. He raises the widow of Nain's son because he sees a person. You see, the sound teaching of Jesus was modeled by Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life away as a ransom for many. So here's where I will leave you today. The high king of heaven has served a feast for you at the cross of the Savior. He has poured out his love there for you, the finest of oils, the best of breads. And he has said, I love you. And he invites you to address your heart, what do you really believe and what do you teach with your actions? And turn your heart afresh, repenting as a 24-7, 365 exercise. Oh Lord, so great is your love for me. Help me now to release me and trust you that I may give that great love away. What teaching do you cling to? And is it worth it? False teaching destroys everything you and I actually crave. Rich and full relationship with our maker, with each other, and even peace within our own hearts and minds. The very hope of the gospel, restoration of all that sin has destroyed. Let me pray.